Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. If you're a founder of a B2C business and currently fundraising, I run a private newsletter where I share companies to past the future guests of the show that I think are interesting. If you'd like to apply to be on the newsletter, head over to theconsumervc.com backslash startup. I would like to thank Adele Archer for introducing me to today's guest, Eric Paley, who is one of the managing partners at Founder Collective. Founder Collective's mission is to be the most aligned VC for founders at Seed. Eric is a pretty legendary seed stage investor. Some of his investments include Uber, Cover Wallet, SeatGeek, Whoop, ThreadUp, and I mean, so many other incredible companies. Previously, Eric was on the other side of the table. He was the founder and CEO of Brontes Technology, which was acquired by 3M. This was really just such an insightful episode where we break down why pro rata is only favorable to the investor, why most VCs want to invest in platforms from the very beginning, thinking about market size, and the biggest risk of a company after finding product market fit. So without further ado, here's Eric. Hey, Eric, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I want to begin by asking you how you think about seed investing. Now you have pre-seed and other emerging stages. What's your definition of seed? It's a hard one to answer, actually, and and it shouldn't be. But over the 11 years we've been doing this, it seems to have morphed a lot. People talk about pre-seed. We often say seed plus for larger seeds that are not quite ready for a Series A. Um, so I'd say it's sort of this um, spectrum, and there's enormous difference from one end to the other end of the spectrum, where it might be a quarter of a million dollar check at the pre-seed, and it could be sometimes five plus million dollars at the seed plus. So I've even heard mango seed stage. So um, we do all of that uh, range, but I think once we feel like it's crossed over to a Series A, it's not for us, and we tend to look at that as the amount of dollars going in combined with the pre-money valuation, creating a post money that just ultimately feels larger than the phase we like to invest in. More of like in, in a funny way, defining what that series A is. What are is there a certain type of valuation at the series A that might be too expensive? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's hard to put a specific number on it, but you know, I think as those valuations cross, you know, well into the double digits, you know, when that that first number in the double digits starts to look like a two. I, I think at some point you you can't help but say, look, this is really a Series A deal with Series A investors. And as folks that really try to be in early, we've stretched beyond our 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 sort of range. So talk to me a little bit about why you chose to start a seed fund originally. I think as an entrepreneur, I had great VCs backing us, but I constantly felt like there was real misalignment um, between us and our and our investors. And you have to appreciate that seed is actually still a relatively new thing. And when I started my company some years ago now in 2003, there really weren't seed investors. Maybe there were a few people who call themselves that, but there really, there was not a seed stage of investing. Most founders had to go and get a series A as their first round of financing. And while that may sound appealing, oh, you get to skip to a series A, the challenge of it was most founders couldn't get money. It was the bar was extremely high because the life cycle investors who are investing at the series A 
um, really saw themselves as putting in money now and over a long period of time. And they were nervous about putting in commitments now that they might feel like they had to follow on over time. And so they were very careful about where they made those commitments. And primarily, they were focused on repeat entrepreneurs. So it used to be the first time you founded a company, you probably weren't going to get capital. And if somehow you found a way to succeed, or, or maybe you'd get capital once you started demonstrating very significant traction. Once you succeeded with a company, the next time it was easy. And it's cer certainly still true, it's easier the second time. But I think the seed stage has really powered first-time founders. And again, there's still, it can be very difficult to raise money, but there's now a lot of money for people doing this for the first time. And that, that's what the seed stage created. And despite that we had these great investors in our company, because of that misalignment, I always felt like there must be a way to be much more aligned to the entrepreneur. And fortunately, we had an angel investor, Dave Frankel, who we always felt much more aligned to what we were doing in building that business than our investors. And largely it was because he came in as an angel really, really early and he wasn't there for the purpose of investing round after round. He really was there for that phase to be an angel and then to sit on the same side of the table as us going forward by diluting alongside us over time. And Dave Frankel ultimately, as, as you know, became my partner in, in starting Founder Collective, along with our, our, my co-founder of that company, Michael Rosenblum, who's my other partner. And we really set out to build this fund to institutionalize the kind of investing Dave was doing that was so much more aligned for founders. In terms of misalignment, I've heard you talk about ProRata very much favors the investor rather than the founder. Is that also what, what you're referring to in terms of uh, misalignment, just focusing on, uh, in terms of following on, only following on on the Series A rather than following on all through the next rounds? Yeah. So when I was a founder, I had the misconception that Parada was somehow positive for me, that the idea that my investors might want to invest round after round was great because we're going to need capital and it's great to have people who have deep pockets. The reality is that your investors having a right, but not an obligation to write a check into your company round after round after round is a free option for them. It's a call option for them. And somebody sold them that option. And you know the, the big reveal is it's the founder who sold them that option. And because they have no obligation to actually write a check, it is never money that's in any way callable by the founder. In fact, the only place where a VC is asserting their pro rata right is in a circumstance where you do not need their money. Because if you need their money, they have no reason to need a special right. You would ask for it and they would give it to you. The idea that, that a VC has a codified special right to put money into the next round is specifically for the purpose of when you do not want that capital. So it really doesn't serve the founder's interests at all, right? If the founder had a choice whether to take the capital or not, and the VC wanted to put money in, that would be great. But that's not really how Parada works. And it creates a very significant misalignment as you're building your business. Talk to me a little bit about how real is signaling and should founders be a bit wary or be a bit nervous when considering taking investment from a fund that, that, that invests at multi-stages. Yeah. So signaling drives so much of the process, the thinking of the industry. The problem is you really can't mathematically validate that, right? First of all, there's no follow-on investor who wants to say they're not investing specifically because they got some signals they didn't like. They want to believe it's the totality of the investment that is the reason they're not investing. So no one says, oh, so-and-so is not investing. Otherwise, I loved it. But I'm so easily influenced by your previous investor that 
I'm not interested. But the challenge is VCs actually don't get to know the companies that deeply. I wrote a piece on this a while ago about how small things really make outsized impressions when you don't get that many data points. And one of those things that should in theory be small is when a large investor is already at the table at a company you're looking at and doesn't want to write a check. And whether you say it out loud or not as a VC, your immediate reaction to that is, if this is such a great opportunity, if this is my next great billion dollar company, why would this terrific inv large investor that never invested in this company to write a small check, why would they not be writing another check? Why, why am I such a fool, right? And I think while most VCs don't like to admit it, and frankly, it's very self-serving for large VCs to claim these signals don't matter and don't exist, and point to examples where they didn't follow on and the company got money. And of course, there are some examples like that, we as a seed fund have been watching this movie for 11 years, and I can tell you with great confidence, we have tremendous difficulty helping our companies get funded when a very large investor who's already at the table doesn't want to write a check. VCs talk about being contrarian, but I think to your point, VCs more move together. Yeah, and I think people would say, oh, it's such a lending industry, but I actually think it's way more understandable than that, right? Which is maybe you've spent five hours with the founder and you're deciding whether to write a $10 million check. And you know this other fund that you respect has been in theory, working with this company for the last 18, 24 months, and they're not interested. Five hours is not a lot of time to convince yourself against the evidence that some other smart fund that knows the company better than you is passing. And so these signals are subtle, but they really are impactful. So the lesson for founders is not don't ever work with a large fund. I think the lesson for founders is you need them to write a big enough check to you in the round in which they're first investing that it's not easy to walk away for them either, right? And that's why large funds investing at seed stage is really not helpful to founders. It sort of limits their future options. And if you look at the track record, even though every founder believes they'll be the exception, in most cases, when large funds invest at the very early stage, very small percentage of the time do they lead a, a, follow, a next round. And then the founder has the burden of trying to overcome the negative stigma that that fund invested and is no longer interested. So for multi-stage funds, should founders, when they're doing their due diligence on the fund, should they be asking the questions of what is your pro rata strategy? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very important to understand it. I think it's also important to understand that almost every single venture fund um, does do pro rata, right? We will follow on, never lead at the Series A, largely just to show support, and then we're done. That's a pretty unique thing. And we do it specifically because we think it drives bigger, better alignment over time with the founders. But almost every fund is going to have pro rata. I think the important thing to understand in managing all this risk is just, is the check really material to that fund for the round that you're, ta that you're taking their money in? Because if they're writing a relatively trivial check, there's enormous asymmetry in the risk you're taking on them versus the risk they're taking on you. Got it. Switching gears a little bit, why are platforms so popular with venture capitalists? Yeah, so I wrote a piece on this quite a while back called The Platform Paradox. You know, I think one of my frustrations as a VC is that many, many VCs haven't actually built a company as an entrepreneur, and that's fine. There are many great VCs who have not built a company. But when you've never built a company, it's like when you've never made a movie, right? you kind of have this high level view of all the ingredients that make a great movie, right? And that characteristic that makes a great movie is if it was all birthed at once. 
And I think the challenge is that, it, again, if you've never built a, a company before, it's easy to look at platforms and say, what we're interested in investing in is platforms, as if they're all birthed as platforms, right? What I'm interested in having as a child is an Olympian, as if there isn't a process that might actually lead to all kinds of different outcomes besides being an Olympian, but becoming an Olympian doesn't happen at birth. And so the challenge is that it leads founders to believe that they should be for minute one pitching a platform. And I have never seen really good platforms birthed from day one. There probably are a handful of exceptions, but usually what I see is companies launch products that are not platforms, but the product becomes successful enough that it can build an ecosystem around it. And then as it builds that ecosystem around it, it becomes more and more of a platform. Eventually it truly is a platform. And then at some point, you know, like it becomes a wild success. And then those VCs who take a look at that company go, you see, every great company should be a birth as a platform. But you know, it's it's sort of like, you know, you can't build a billion dollar company without building a million dollar company, right? Like I think VCs, because a lot of us have never done it, skip over these steps. Ambition's great. Obviously you want ambitious founders. Big vision is great, but but you can't skip over all these other steps along the way. And if you do, if you try to, I think you make a lot of mistakes, right? Because capital doesn't solve your problems. You actually need to prove things are working somewhere along the way. And not usually can you instantly demonstrate that your platform is working. What are some of the mistakes that you've seen if maybe an entrepreneur or a company is trying to build a platform too early? Well, I think what happens is nothing happens, right? Like I, I think what happens is like they believe that if they were able to achieve their end state, everyone would want to be there. And so everyone despite that they're not at their end state, everyone should still want to be there. So I'll try to give you an example. You know, eBay really launched as a collectibles auction. Pez dispensers, Disney figurines. I think if they had launched day one as we are an auction house for anything, they would have had crickets, right? Instead, they picked these niches that really were underserved and they were able to go to those customers offering, you know, it was a marketplace, but offering effects like a packaged product of here's a place you can trade these things that you can't easily do elsewhere. And then it expanded from there. But I think if day one, they said, everyone should want to be on this, or, you know, yeah, we think of Apple as so powerful and we think of their, their app ecosystem as so powerful, but you have to appreciate that the iPhone is not a massive success because it was birthed with an extraordinary app ecosystem. In fact, I think it was three or four years after the iPhone launched that it introduced apps for third-party developers. It really was because the iPhone was valuable and powerful and appreciated by customers that it made sense to bring third-party developers on board and that third-party developers would be excited to build for the platform because they had lots of customers and a great unique product. And then of course that augmented the value of the product and ultimately as a platform. So I, I just think it's very, very difficult to skip over all of that. You know, you've got to start by finding success with the product. What's some advice then for founders that really are thinking about building a product? Of course, the platform, you know, comes later, but since VCs want to just see those, um, as you say, those platforms from day one and have an Olympian from day one. Yeah, I mean, I think you've got to paint the picture of how you might get from here to there, but then be disciplined enough to say, but none of it matters unless we can prove out stage one, which is this great product. And you've got to be very pragmatic. That product needs to be a good business unto itself. So I definitely have seen the opposite error where an entrepreneur says, yeah, we're going to take kind of a bowling pin strategy. And the first pin is this tiny little opportunity that is never going to be big. 
And the reality is nobody ever wants to fund your second pin if your first pin isn't meaningful. So it's got to start with something that unto itself is very meaningful. And by the way, I usually have seen that companies end up focusing more, not less over time, right? They actually create more value by figuring out how to get more and more and more focused on, you know, sort of that bullseye of what the opportunity is for them rather than broadening. Although I've seen companies succeed by broadening. My point there is more that a lot of companies think or pitch at the beginning that they will become a platform over time. And actually what ends up happening is they find wild success in being more and more focused going the other way. I wanted to also talk about total addressable market. Seems like market is is often quite different amongst founders and investors when pitching. What are some mistakes when thinking about how big a market is? Yeah, so I think VCs have to size markets and they're notoriously awful at it. So just notoriously, like there, there were many pieces written about how the entire market for Uber was at most one to two billion. And that's not revenue, that's gross market opportunity, let alone, you know, they take a 20% net on that. So if you believe that the entire Uber, you know, all of Uber's market revenue opportunity was 200 to 400 million dollars, right? Well, you know, we we know for sure that's not true, you know, as their, you know, their revenues are in the in the tens of billions, right? And so not just their GMV, which is way higher. So markets are very misunderstood by VCs all the time, by the way, including myself. And I think people tend to be very surprised at what ultimately becomes really big companies. And so the onus on the entrepreneur, which is going to always feel unfair, is to try to inspire the investor to understand that the opportunity is big. And I think the hard part is you can kind of do like one of these very uh, regimented tops-down analyses or bottoms-up analyses. You can quickly dissonance with the uh, with the investor, right? They'll, they'll start arguing with you and um, you'll lose credibility. And so I think rather than trying to peg an exact market size, the the real trick for the entrepreneur is to figure out how to tell a story that makes the investor believe the market's big. And if they can get their head around the market's big, they might not spend a lot of time trying to figure out if it's 5 billion or 15 billion. I mean, I'd go as far as saying every multi-billion dollar company we've invested in at some point struggled to convince people their market was big enough, which of course is ironic, right? You'd think it was all the companies that failed that struggle to articulate that, but it, it's, it's just not true. The very best, biggest companies we, uh, outcomes we've been part of struggle to at some point convince VCs of their market size. So I think market sizing is like a little bit of a trap for entrepreneurs. Um, and the, and the trick is just to figure out how to get across the idea. This is big. If you can get across the idea, like if we do this right, it can be a big business, then you win. But if you get really bogged down in like, you know, is it, you know, what's the actual numerical value of the market? You're going to find yourself in a very tough conversation. Like what's the market size for Fitbit? You know, back when, I mean, I, you know, I met the founders back in the early days. I wasn't a VC yet. I think most people would have said, well, like walking pedometers, I don't know. What is, what was it? Probably a $40 million market. Like, I don't, did you know anyone had a walking pedometer before Fitbit? Like there were some, I mean, I maybe met somebody, but it became, you know, and, and obviously it's had its ups and downs, but it became a very valuable company. And I just think that's almost always the case that most of the very best companies build new categories themselves. You know, we were the company I founded, Brontes Technologies, was in the dental market, 3D imaging and and, uh, manufacturing and dentistry. And the company we looked to as our role model at the time was a company called Invisalign. And Invisalign, which is Align Technologies, and a lot of people know that company, very relevant to what we were doing. And the entire ortho market, when we were involved in it, 
if I remember correctly, was like $7 billion. And I don't know the market cap of Invisalign today, but I think it's somewhere around $30 billion. So how do you imagine at the start of these things that the a single business, sorry, it's $20 billion, I'm wrong, but a single business could be three times what was the perceived total market value. And I imagine if you did the analysis back then as an analyst at a venture fund, you'd say, well, maybe if they get this right, they could get 20% of the seven or $8 billion market, right? So what's that, right? You know, maybe they could be a, a $1 billion, $2 billion business, something like that, right? And of course, you know, they're worth $20 billion right now. So I, I just think VCs are classically bad at this and, and the challenge for the entrepreneur is sort of navigate that choppy conversation. That makes a lot of sense. And that's part of the art because you are building new categories. A couple of other investors I had on, said that they're more worried about about companies that are currently trying to raise their series a rather than seed rounds during these times wanted to just see how you're thinking about the seed round currently well i think there's more money than ever coming from the large funds into seed because in tough times it's easier for them to write smaller checks uh, and sort of dip a toe in the water and so you're seeing a lot of capital there's already a lot of capital at seed and now that money's coming in and what i've noticed so far is Pricing really hasn't adjusted much at seed. And that feels wrong to me, although the stock market's been way up as well, uh, you know, maybe until yesterday. So may maybe it, it does reflect sort of the overall capital markets, but it feels wrong to me because I think it's much harder to build businesses right now than it was previously. So I think seed is pretty much in the same place and there's capital flowing. At least we are continue to be quite active. And But I agree, I think it's harder to raise an A right now and a B and a C, right? I think it's harder to get people to lean into writing big checks for their, for their you know, big checks relative to what they're used to for their own bigger check in this moment. And so I, that is a concern. And it may, it may create a bit of indigestion where, you know, a whole bunch of companies continue to get seed, but very a fewer, a smaller percent are, are converting to A than normal. Has the milestones at, at the C stage, has that changed at all due to COVID? I don't think that's happened yet. I think the seed part of the market is robust. I, you know, I think if you start to see valuations falling, that would probably correlate with the milestones getting tougher. But I don't think I've seen that yet. I, I mean, I think everybody always likes to see more traction, more evidence that's always a positive from an investor perspective and from an entrepreneur perspective, usually as well, driving valuation, but I don't, I don't really think the milestones have changed. I think what we may see change a little bit is with A harder to get to, we may see more and more large seed plus type rounds um, than we have before. Got it. Has it been harder to find conviction in founders since now you're meeting with them remotely rather than in person? I would say that's the biggest challenge is sort of getting to know people. You know, we, we, we like to get face to face and, and really engage the entrepreneur over multiple sessions before we invest. And we're trying to do that over video conference, but it, it is definitely not the same. Last episode release was with a Kanye from Kindred Ventures. And what he was saying is that even just something simple as eye contact, when you when you're meeting in person, you know, if you don't show eye contact, that just might be how you're wired and, and you can kind of get used to it. But if you don't show eye contact on like a Zoom call, I don't know if you're also just like looking around or, or, or you know, on the Internet or, or, or doing something else or your mind's actually away from the conversation. So I remember doing a pitch once with an entrepreneur. This is before COVID that was over Zoom or a video conference, and he was looking constantly sort of past the screen to the right just nonstop, just, and continuing to talk, but constantly. And you, you kind of wondered 
something wrong? Was he not valuing the conversation? Was he, and often we was missing a beat too and responding. And, you know, there might've been a totally reasonable explanation for it, but it definitely made a not positive impression, right? And I, I think, you know, again, is like very small things get multiplied when you get few data points. And I think that's always been a challenge for the venture capitalist um, entrepreneur getting to know each other process. And I think that's even more true in the era of Zoom, right? Really small things get get multiplied in terms of their importance. Have you changed maybe any of your strategy during COVID in terms of like uh, verticals or markets that you're that you're now finding attractive and interesting that you weren't before? I think the answer to that right now is no, but I would say the one filter that does feel a little different, and I don't know that we've really applied this deeply yet, but it feels obvious that we need to, is if this is a business that we particularly think is going to struggle during the COVID era, should we really be investing? Because with very little visibility for how long this period is gonna go on for, I think sort of expecting that the company is gonna be able to get to a new set of milestones if for some reason their business is disadvantaged in this period, right? Like maybe their business is about public gatherings or it's about you know restaurant technology or, I think those start to look much more risky right now in terms of showing traction. So we have not disqualified anything on that basis. I don't think we've had a company where it was so obvious that COVID would have a really negative effect in terms of somebody we were excited about and pitching us. But I think we'd we'd have a hard time not applying some of that to the thought process. But no, we're not actively pursuing companies that we think, you know, have a lot of upside to managing this environment. That's you know, I think our view is it's, you know, both in the positive for those types of companies and the negative for the others I mentioned before, it's unclear how long this is going to last. And so we're, that, we're not, we're not changing our viewpoint of what we look for based on what's going on right now. Got it. I want to also talk a little bit about, you know, back in your founding days when you were a founder, I know that you mentioned how there were VCs that didn't think that your technology would work. So they didn't invest and they actually were right. And, th- and this ended up with, with you making a pivot. However, for those that did invest, they were extremely happy with the outcome. You had an acquisition from 3M and were very, very successful providing value. And especially with the pivot, it was a very successful pivot. And so it seems as though what made you successful was your obsession with the problem rather than your initial solution. Does this factor at all when you're when you're analyzing founding teams and founders about how they're approaching the problem? So we always tell people we're most driven by the founder, right, in our decision-making process. And then we will spend time with the founders digging really deep on their business. And some people ask us, maybe after we say no, or they're frustrated with us, they'll say, hey, you said you're all about, you know, getting to know the founders and then, and and all about backing the person. And then you spend all this time asking about the business. And the, the reason we do that is that's how we get to know the founder. What we're really interested in is trying to understand how they think and how they adapt and how agile their thinking is. Because we know that the really good founders are going to face obstacles. And the question is, how do they overcome them? So I think a VC who is investing in Brontes, the company we founded, because they thought the technology was so amazing, was probably going to be making a mistake, right? Ultimately, if it was going to succeed, it was going to be because um, the people figured out how to make something work, both from a technology standpoint, product standpoint, and of course, um, sales and marketing standpoint on all those fronts. But ultimately, you've got to invest in people that can figure it out, right? They can work through the problem, get through the maze, and and not so much uh, the specific business in the moment or the specific technology. 
But the trick is we think the people who will most likely get through the maze are the ones who are deeply, deeply thinking about the challenges of their business and their technology. So that's why we want to engage on it so deeply because what we're really trying to understand is how deeply are you thinking about it? Because our view is like the founder who doesn't think about it deeply now is going to be very late to making changes and they're also going to not think that deeply about what they're doing next. And so we're, we're looking for that flexibility, but also real depth. Have you ever invested in a company where you were actually unconvinced with their solution or, or, or what they were building? However, you had such conviction on the team and the problem that they were addressing and just how they were thinking? I, I have. I won't name names, but yeah, we've made, we've made it numerous investments where, or at least I'd say I had apprehension about um, where what the plan was in that moment, but I really liked how they thought about testing it. And I believed in the people and I figured they would get there. The other thing I'd add to that is, I think it's important to recognize that as investors, we really often misunderstand markets. Like we don't actually know better than everyone else. We're really looking for the depth from the entrepreneur, partially because we don't want to start from the assumption that we know. So I could look at a business and say, eh, I'm not so sure about the market, but boy, this person is so deep. They probably are right. That makes sense. Well, well touching on markets, how do you think about a great market that a company is maybe building and you really think it's a great market rather than a, a mediocre market? I just really start from the place of like, if this works, could this be big? You know, I know it's very simplistic, but it's, I try not to get too fixated on market sizing or, you know, is this a good market or a bad market? I guess there are things I disqualify as like, I just don't think that ever, like I, I can't understand how that becomes a big business, you know, and may, maybe some of it will, right? Like, you know, but, um, and I'll be wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm wrong a lot, but, but I have to believe, right? It has to make sense to me. So there are things I will say, I just, I don't see it. It doesn't make any sense that this would get big. By the way, there really are, I can think of numerous examples over time of things I had trouble imagining how they get big and they, and they quite, they got quite big, but, but I just need to have enough to feel comfortable checking that box. Um, and there, you know, I, I think there are markets that don't look obvious on the surface that they'd be big and they're really big. You know, I, I led around in, in Embark Veterinary, it's dog DNA testing business. My biggest fear, even when I led that round, is that you know the market just wouldn't be that big. Um, the business has grown exceptionally, and you know I think the business already is the size that I feared the the entire limitation of the market might be. So I think I'm wrong. You know, I, well, I, look, the good news is I was right enough to invest. The fear I had was completely wrong. And I just, you know, I think if you ask the average VC, you know, is dog DNA testing going to be a big market? I think we'd all be overly dismissive. And yet it turns out, you know, it, it, it's actually quite a big market. Or I've got another, I mean, an amazing one. Like, you know, I had apprehension when I, I helped catalyze the first round of Joytunes, which is a company that teaches kids how to play the piano by creating tablet-based games that interprets from the piano the notes and, and that drives the game. And I love the founder and I thought the concept was super powerful. And despite that, I played a role in catalyzing the round and I wrote a check. I really had apprehension about how big it could be. And then every VC I introduced it to over time told me it couldn't be big. Company is growing unbelievably. It's, it's one of the best companies in our portfolio, just a spectacular business. Turns out, you know, all of those VCs were just completely wrong. Well, good thing you're right. That's awesome. That's awesome. What are some of the differences when evaluating a B2C company versus a B2B company at the seed? You know, I think one of the big differences is like ROI. You know, I, I think B2B 
usually there needs to be, I mean, there, there, there are sort of exceptions to this, but there needs to be some clear economic motivator for the buyer. And B2C, there does not at all need to be an economic motivator for the buyer, right? I think a lot of the B2B, the best B2C companies don't have any kind of economic motivator for the buyer, and that's totally fine, but it's a different evaluation process, right? Like, you know, when, when you can really focus on meaningful hard ROI, um, or sometimes like more soft, but like intellectually clear ROI, it is a very useful tool in evaluating a company. And that is definitely much more challenging if you're looking at like a really early stage, maybe no users yet, social network, <laughs> where there isn't going to be a you know economic return on investment. What you're really trying to understand is why will the consumer care? What will energize them? Are there flows that will naturally grow the business? So I think you know the consumer really is such a different buyer, and there are ROI-driven consumer opportunities as well. But but most of the good ones don't look that way. And we've said this on the show a lot, but but kind of one of the fun things about a consumer and also nerve-wracking things too is since consumers are fickle, it can be uh, in some ways a lot more challenging in terms of figuring out what actually would, would stick with consumers. I, mean, I think what's interesting is like when it comes to tech, I think consumers are less fickle than people like to say. Like I, I certainly believe in fashion and other categories, entertainment, consumers can be very fickle. I mean, I guess what it depends what you mean a bit by fickle, but I, I don't see a lot of tech companies where like consumers really are incredibly energized and then they just change their minds. Um, I, I mean, it, it can happen for sure, but most, mostly, you know, when, it, when, it, when consumers seem to be really deeply engaging, you see some very interesting things happen. That's actually a very fair point. I know that you've also talked about, you know, the the pitfalls of over fundraising, and you know, is at the C stage, is this a, is this a conversation that you have with founders that you're, that you're considering investing in? Yeah, I'd say my biggest concern. First of all, this is one of these conversations you have with founders, and they kind of are like, "This is not my biggest concern right now." You know, they're you know, it's like, oh, so so I just struggled like crazy to raise money, and now you want to talk to me about the dangers of too much money. But I think the thing that's hard to get across to founders is that money really is an enabler, but it has, we, we always say capital has no insights. It does not actually solve your problems. And so it is really, um, you need to have sufficient capital, but too much capital actually exacerbates problems. I don't usually think it is a typically big issue at the seed stage, but as things start to look interesting in the business and more and more investors get excited about it, I would say once companies find product market fit, the biggest risk for the business is poor capitalization. And when I say poor, I mean the opposite. I mean overcapitalization or just bad capitalization strategies. Because when you see a business that looked quite interesting and raised a ton of money and then flames out completely, what happened was they started consuming capital way ahead of the evidence they were building about their business, right? And ultimately, that always had a catastrophic, almost always has a catastrophic outcome, right? It's it, when you start burning ahead of the value creation, you cause irreparable harm. And it, it's not that you can never overcome that irreparable harm, but it really is harm, right? Like you can't actually fix it. You might, you might actually succeed in the business and actually make up for it in some way, but you can't fix it, right? When you're burning three times the capital that you should be, given the evidence of your business, the only way to, to quote unquote fix that is to really damage the business, right? You, you have to do dramatic layoffs. You have to cut your investments. 
you have to swallow sort of the pill of this isn't working. And the problem is people do that really late. They don't do it early, right? And so most of the case, at some point they hit a wall. And that people get on this, you know, founders get on this like VC merry-go-round where they need to keep convincing people that the business is doing amazing, even though it isn't, and find somebody who's going to give them the next step up in price. And some founders are very good at selling through that for a period of time, but you, you can't sustain that when what you really need to do is fix the business, right? Because you're not fixing the business by doing that. And so there, there, at some point it becomes clear there's, there's no way out of that trap right? Unless you just swallow a really hard pill and say, wait a second, this isn't working. And you try to start over. And that is very harmful. It's, it's better than not dealing with the problem. But you know, you kind of run a delusion instead of a, a real business for a very long period of time. It's, it's all of a sudden hard to run a real business. I've also had, you know, a lot of investors in the show, I guess a lot of uh, a, a lot of their takeaways is really to actually founders should be focusing, especially in the very early stages about distribution, go to market strategy. And um, how should founders think about unique distribution strategy for B2C type businesses? Yeah. So, you know, I think for a long time, the advice that founders were getting was you got to get the product right. Don't try to like get it out there and, you know, and really push hard on distribution until the product's right. And I think everyone overcorrected to sort of like, don't worry about distribution. Distribution will take care of itself the second the product's right. And I would say, in general, I view those as equally challenging create creative problem-solving initiatives, right? Creating a product that people really value and figuring out how to get it to people in a cost-effective way are both really hard problems. And typically what you find is people who spend their lives solving one or the other problem don't have fair respect for how hard the other one is. So if you're a product founder and you build a product you love, you only usually give real respect to how hard it is to distribute that product when all of a sudden nobody's buying it. So I think the trick is to get a good enough, and I think like, you know, the Lean Startup has had its ups and downs as, as a critique, but it, I think it's right in the notion is get a good enough product together, some minimum viable product that you can actually get into people's hands and learn from those people. But you have to actually continue that activity of, okay, well, let's keep pushing this, like how do we get into people's hands and how, how can we make the cost of getting into people's hands make sense? And that needs to, at that point, start to become one of the key learning processes in the business, unless the product really isn't working for people, in which case, for sure, you need to go back, adjust the product and come back. But the, the main point is this is a back and forth process and you can't just wait for some perfect product to emerge because... I never see companies go from net promoter score 10 to 80 overnight. Usually it's a progression and it goes slowly. And so if you're sitting around waiting to get really up there to first start learning about how to distribute your, your product, you'll generally be waiting forever. And then you've got this whole other really hard problem to solve, which is actually how to distribute your product. So you have to sort of stage these things intelligently and iteratively in order to win. But for sure, it doesn't help to distribute a product nobody likes. For sure. How are you thinking about, I guess, it seems like consumer has been a bit out of favor. You know, one of the many reasons why been out of favor per se over the past few years is because of distribution. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I look, I think customer acquisition for a period of time got um, the arbitrage went away. It got much more expensive. And I think that caused a lot of strain, but I'd also say lots of consumer businesses grew very quickly during that time. We have some that didn't do well at all. And we have others in our portfolio in a period where people were um, you know, basically saying, oh, consumers 
you know, hugely challenging and, and, and attracting customers gotten really expensive that scaled incredibly quickly. So I think, you know, the, the arbitrage may not be as good as it once was, but the idea is not to be in the arbitrage business, right? The idea is to compound value, right? And I think you compound value by getting smarter and smarter on all your channels while first and foremost building a product people really value, driving up net promoter score and building sort of energy around why your offering is so good. And I think as you do that and come up with more and more creative distribution strategies and just build sophistication, compound sophistication in all the different parts of your business, entrepreneurs can build great consumer businesses. And we've been very lucky to see our companies do that. And I don't mean to dismiss the challenge of how expensive customers have become, but I think when you, when you build something unique and you invest well, you know, in getting smarter and smarter on all the vectors that matter for building your business um, and stay out ahead of competition on satisfying your customer more than anyone else, um, that, that target, that's the exact right customer for you. There's tons of opportunity. And, and with that being said, I mean, what are, what are some uh, consumer trends or areas of focus? So this is going to sound funny, but we are completely not thematic in the way we do things. So we really don't um, try to think about things as trend lines or um, general themes that are exciting. You know, when everyone was going crypto crazy, you know, we were like, look, if somebody comes in with a great use case that makes sense to us, we'll be excited and we'll want to back them. Um, if it's an entrepreneur that we're really impressed with, but we, you know, we're not gonna make a crypto bet because everyone's talking about crypto. And so our, our general view has always been that great founders tend to look for opportunities in weird and wonderful places. And we're quite excited about investing in places that when they walked in the door, we would not have thought obviously would be great investment areas. And, you know, even if you look back 11 years ago, when we did Uber 10 years ago, it was a, a on-demand livery car service, right? And I had a lot of VCs say to me back then when I talked to them about the deal, um, you know, there are 10 plus thousand livery car companies in America. How hard is it for them to create a mobile app? And if you looked at the business that way, it was not a very appealing business. But if you actually heard the way Ryan Graves was thinking about the business at the time that he pitched us, it was a very compelling business. And he was really taking us through a weird and wonderful sector that venture capitalists were not really particularly interested in that turned out to be, you know, really the best business of that period, of that era. So we really try to stay out of themes. You know, we talked today about dog DNA and we talked about children learning music on, you know, through games, you know, like when we did the Whoop investment, which has become, you know, probably very arguably Boston's hottest consumer company. It's, it's growing like crazy, right? So Whoop is a wearable that helps you understand your, your fitness and your performance. We had LPs say to us when we presented them in our annual meeting, is there really room in the market for another wearable? Fitbit's already struggling and, you know, isn't the wearables market played out? We tried to explain that we're not focusing on, we don't focus on themes. We focus on people and use cases. And we really felt that the use case that Will Ahmed was going after was, was not saturated at all and made a lot of sense. And we, we, we loved Will and his co-founder, John, and we became convinced that was a great opportunity and we invested. So we really try to stay out of the, the sort of noise of what's the theme, what should we be chasing? And we really try to focus on listening 
and understanding why an entrepreneur believes something is a uniquely exciting opportunity. And usually it's not in the places you would think. That makes a lot of sense. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? You know, I, I really felt like Fooled by Randomness probably had a bigger impact. By the way, I could even say like personally and professionally on me than just about anything else I've read. Tlaib since has gone, you know, in lots of directions that I find totally not or do not resonate with me. But that book was really, really powerful and just really understanding um, how much role luck plays in all of this. I really do believe you work really hard for the opportunity to get lucky. And if you don't work as hard, you're much less likely to be lucky. But it is, it is a fascinating book um, in humility, in really understanding how much randomness there is in all of this. And I think as a VC, you have to sort of think of it as, you know, an investment is not right or wrong. It's part of a distribution of probabilities. And if you do it really well over time, your batting average is high enough. It's sort of like saying like, if I go to the bat, you know, in the batter's box every day and I have a good approach to the plate, I'm still going to get out seven out of 10 times. But if I hit 300, I'm going to go to the hall of fame. Right. And when I strike out, it doesn't mean my at bat was a bad at bat. And when I hit a home run, it doesn't mean that was like, I mean, yeah, it was a good outcome, but it doesn't mean I executed better on that at bat per se right? I just need to work really hard to, you know, to have the opportunity to be lucky. That's great advice and a great way to think about it. What's, what's one piece of advice that you have for B2C founders? You know, I, I won't make it specifically consumer. I, I would say this about all founders. You're, there are no adults. Um, it's, just, it's just you, right? I mean, you can utilize the intelligence and capability of the people around you, your investors, your co-founder, hopefully your um, team members, and I don't mean to say it's all on you, but there's no one who's going to actually um, truly drive the integrity of the reason the business is truly valuable, except for you. And it's super easy to get caught up in all of the nonsense, the amount of money you raise, the amount of money your competitors raise, the the number of, mem- of team members you have versus some friend of yours who's running another company. You know, I, I wrote a piece a long time ago called Keeping Up with the Startup Joneses, right? And, and the truth is none of that stuff really matters. What really matters is, are you creating really strong value? And are you compounding that value by investing more and more in making the product better and better and investing more and more in figuring out how to get it to your customer? And a lot of the other stuff is actually getting in the way. A lot of the stuff that is supposed to make your business more valuable and can be an enabler is actually multiplying negative compounding value, right? Um, It's just nobody's saying it and nobody's doing anything about it. And it really is on you to say, that doesn't make sense. Like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to double my burn rate because my VC thinks I'm not going fast enough when I'm not sure that those are good investments. You know, I'm not going to try to live up to some arbitrary notion of the multi-billion dollar business somebody thinks I need to have tomorrow. I'm going to focus on building real value over time. And by the way, I want to go as fast as possible, but only as fast as we've instrumented for success. So you got to, you got to demonstrate that you can put a dollar in and get $2 out or, you know, whatever, whatever the right formula is, maybe you're not monetizing yet, but if you're a consumer, but You've got to demonstrate that your your investment is paying off in the way you want, and then you can scale it like crazy. But if you're putting a dollar in and you're getting 50 cents back, and I just mean that as like negative compounding value, and a dollar can just be any form of resource. It could be CEO time. It could be anything. 
um, where you're getting not high value out of that time, that's negative compounding value. And if you start investing in that, you'll destroy your business. Even if the supposed grownups are telling you you're doing the right thing. No pressure, but it's all on you. Well, I think you can bring everyone else into that conversation very effectively. But you know, you, you can either choose to be the emperor who's wearing no clothes, and a lot of people will enable that, or you can be the one who's calling out constantly when somebody's not wearing clothes. Because at the end of the day, you know, like you want you want the success of the business, and all that other stuff makes it feel like you're being more successful. And all of the truth telling sometimes makes it feel like you're being less successful, but it's the only way you can actually be successful. And so there's like an odd paradox in there that every founder has to find their way through, but the BS never builds the business. I think that's a great, that's a great piece of advice. Well, Eric, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on. My, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And there you have it. It was such a blast having Eric on, sharing all his helpful insights about fundraising and investing at the seed stage. I highly recommend following Eric on Twitter where he's very active at ePaley. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.